Please bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are ignorant of all that you are. We would be ignorant if you had not revealed yourself to us in your word and in your son. We have no way of knowing you knowing how we have offended you, knowing how to be reconciled to you, knowing how to worship you, except for your word, except for your gracious self-revelation in Scripture, your spirit illuminating the pages of your word, shining the light of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ into our hearts. Would you do that now? shed light in Scripture, would you shed light into our hearts? Lord, you say your word that you are watching over your word to perform it. We need you to watch over your word now to make it do all that you want it to do in us and through us. Watch over your word now to perform it, we pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. When we, read the, when we read the book of Proverbs, the temptation is to go away thinking that if we just know when to apply the right proverb in the right way, life will go well. We'll avoid life's biggest problems and sorrows. We'll be able to keep our lives and families and relationships under control. Everyone will think well of us and we'll be confirmed in our rightness and in our respectability in other people's eyes. Of course, we don't have to live long to realize that life doesn't always conform to Proverbs. can lead us to disillusionment with ourselves, with the Bible, even with God himself. That disillusionment, that bitter frustration, that despair, that feeling like giving up on life because you felt like you did everything right and it still didn't work. Giving up on God, giving up on the Bible. You feel like, well, I did it. I did the proverb. I obeyed it. And still, it didn't work. This didn't work for me. That disillusionment, that frustration, that feeling of despair is what the book of Ecclesiastes is directly addressing in your heart. Kohelet, the preacher gatherer of observations and the convener of the assembly of God's people is giving us his observations about life and how he's attempted to square his long, hard, honest look at reality with the wisdom and righteousness of God that he is trying to hang on to. And it's not been easy for him. This morning we come to Ecclesiastes 6.10 to 7.29 and here he comes to grips with the value of wisdom itself. When events and circumstances don't always seem to respect 
Proverbs and Wisdom. His main point here is that wisdom can protect you, but it cannot put you in control. Wisdom is good, but it cannot outmaneuver God, and it cannot make you into a God over your life. Limited. So don't get him wrong. Kohelet is not an enemy of Proverbs. He's not saying rip Proverbs out of your Bible or don't memorize the proverb of the day. What he doubts, though, is a simplistic application of Proverbs kind of naive, black and white, this will always work and that will always fail view of Proverbs and life. Just parent your kids this way. Just view your career that way. Just make sure you have a quiet time. Just make sure you do this, that, and the other, and everything will work out just fine. That's the view of Proverbs that Kohelet has soured on. He hasn't soured on the Proverbs themselves. He's soured on that view and application of the Proverbs. It's just not that simple, Kohelet says. Kohelet still buys wisdom. He just doesn't buy that assumption about wisdom. Life throws too many curveballs at you to be disillusioned when your proverb of the day didn't prove true for you in your situation that was so close to your heart. I think a lot of you have probably been, have, you've, you've probably been driving on the road every once in a while, and you'll see on the car in front of you, usually it's a big pickup truck, a black or red one. It's got a little stick family, and it says, I don't care about your stick family. You seen that? Sometimes, we can look at Proverbs and we can say, I don't, I don't think life cares about my proverb. <laughs> life doesn't care about my proverb. Or any of the Proverbs, from what I can see. Not right now, not in my despair, not in my darkness, not in my frustration, not in my confusion. Life doesn't care about my proverb. I thought it did. I thought it should. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. Now you have to interpret the Proverbs of Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12, in light of the frame that it's in, which is chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, and chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The frame is God's sovereignty over our lot in life, over all prosperity and adversity. God's sovereignty, His authority, His rule, His control over all that happens limits our understanding of the things that happen to us. And God set it up that way, Ecclesiastes tells us, on purpose. Read along with me in your Bible as I read first Ecclesiastes 6, 10 to 12, and then a little later, 7, 13 to 14. 6, 10 to 12, 10 to 11. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with, I would say, the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? 
See, that paragraph only makes sense if it means that God is the one who has determined and defined all that happens. He's the one stronger. That is the paragraph that you and I have to come to grips with this morning. Predestination is a thing. God has already named, planned, defined, determined, identified, interpreted all that has come to be before it came. Already. Reality is given by God, not created by man. That's the reality. God made this world what it is. He made you who you are, what you are. He made humanity, male and female, in His image. God is the one who assigned a biological sex to every person. Humanity did not create itself, and so humanity cannot define itself. The cosmos did not create itself. God created and named, defined all humanity, all reality. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Not in self. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. He made your life what it is, what it has been, what it is becoming. He's doing that. Therefore, humanity is not sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. Here's the rub. You and I are not in control. God is in control. Now that's an easy sentence to say. It is very hard to apply and believe and trust in the middle of what you feel like is spinning out of control that is so dear to your heart. And as for humanity, it's known by God what humanity is. That is dust. What humanity is, is not strong enough to dispute with the stronger one, God. Humanity is not able to talk back to God any more than my four-year-old is able to talk back to me. The more you argue with God about your lot in life, the more absurdity, the more senselessness you speak into His world. Why? Because it is God's sovereignty itself that limits our knowledge and ability. Who knows what is good for man? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? We cannot know what is best for us now. At least not like God. Because we cannot predict the outcome of all things as he can in the future. We don't know how it's going to turn out. So how do we know what to do? We can't possibly know all the unintended consequences, all the unforeseen circumstances that our decisions will cause, so we can't know their outcome. But if we can't know their outcome, how can we possibly know what to do? You don't know. You don't know. Not like God knows. So it's no use arguing. Not with God. Now skip down to 7, 13 to 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful 
and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Get a load of that. That's in the Bible. The work of God here is His work of creation and providence. He created and continually rules all reality and your life. How your life is going. And if He has made something crooked in your life, then no person can straighten that out. There's a bentness to reality in general. And there's a bentness to your life in particular to your history, maybe to your present. All this bentness is a penalty for human sin, and God put it there. You may not be able to trace your current bentness to some particular sin that you committed, but in general, the world is bent because sin entered. We warped our own relationship with God above us by trying to decide right and wrong for ourselves out from under His authority. So God warped our relationship to life around us, below us. He made life go sideways on us. He bent reality against us, or as Paul said in Romans 8, He subjected creation to futility, absurdity, senselessness. Since God is divine and we are only dust, we can't do anything about that or argue him out of it. Now, you ask, how in the world? Literally, how in the world am I supposed to live like that? How am I supposed to live in a world like that? What do you expect me to do with that? What does God expect me to do with that? How in the world can I read these things and keep living. And stay related to God. I mean, if it's like this, by God's own design, no less, how do I live in that? The way to wisdom, according to Kohelet, is to rejoice in times of prosperity, and when adversity hits, admit that God made the day of adversity just like he made the day of prosperity. Friend, you've got to come to grips with that. God made your adversity just like he made your prosperity. And both are for your good and for his glory in your life. So acknowledge God's sovereignty over the crookedness of your lot in life. Whatever's wrong with it, whatever does, doesn't make sense to you, whatever seems totally upside down, whatever didn't work out, whatever that is, God put it there. Loving, righteous, all-wise God put it there. You submit to it. Proverbs in 7, 1 through 12, as well as all his counsel in verses 15 to 29, are going to tell you how to live life in a world that is governed by a sovereign God who puts both prosperity and adversity into your life. 
But Kohelet is giving us the ultimate reality check here. Who runs my reality? The reality check is, I don't run my reality. God runs it. and He brings things into my life that I don't want, that I don't think are good or good for me, that don't make sense to me, because He is all wise and I am not. We are not God. You and I are not in control. God is God. God is in control. God has all the leverage. You and I never leverage God. So who knows what is good for man while he lives? That's the question. Proverbs 7, 1 to 12 are mostly better than statements. Seven times we read the word better in 7, 1 through 10. But the word for better there is simply good. Good, as in 6, 12, 6, 11, 6, 12. Well, here's what's good then. But the good is stated, 7, 1 to 10 is what's good. This is answer to that question. What is good? 7, 1 to 10 is good. Kohelet knows that some things in the theater of the absurd are better than others. So the good that is stated is only relative to other things that are not as good. You see? What's good in this life? Well, some things are better than others still. We don't know what's good. Not ultimately. Not finally. Not certainly. But Kohelet knows that some things in the theater of the absurd are better than others as we submit to God's mysterious providence over us. So because God is sovereign in 6.10, these Proverbs represent wise living under His sovereignty. But even though we are ignorant in 6.11 and 12, these Proverbs are still knowable. And they're worth knowing if we keep in mind that even no proverb can be absolutized Say, always, 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 without fail, this is going to remain true. And it'll come true for you every single time. Can't do that to a problem. So, how do you live wisely in light of God's sovereignty and life's limitations? Kohelet gives us seven counsels that are going to organize our time together in God's Word. How do you live wisely in light of God's sovereignty and in light of life's limitations? Seven counsels. First, think on your death. Think on your death. Seven, one to four. Since God is sovereign, and since we can't know infallibly what's good to do with this vain life we pass like a shadow, the day of death is better than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's not telling you to have a death wish. But from Kohelet's Old Testament perspective, which wasn't sure about the afterlife at that point, death released you from the absurdity of life in a fallen world. 
And in that sense, death was desirable. But more broadly, the time of death is better than the time of birth because the time of death is when you kind of learn how it all turned out. Where was all this going? How does it all end for me? Which you couldn't know during life. For the Christian, the one trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with God, death has become the doorway to everlasting life and the new creation with the God of love. But for the non-Christian, death still stings. It may release you from this life, but it plunges you into hell in the life to come. So we cannot abuse this text as if it negates all Jesus said about himself and about hell as the afterlife of unrepentant sinners. Death is not desirable if you're not in Christ. And the certainty of death for all people is the reason that it's good to go to funerals, the house of mourning. Death is coming for me and you. Not just for the person whose funeral we attended most recently. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Take it to heart, friends. You will die. Jonathan Edwards resolved then to live every day as if it might be the day of his death, so as not to do anything he'd regret. He died that night. Sinner, are you ready to die? What makes you so sure about that? At death, you will meet your Maker. Your God will reckon with you. He will settle accounts. Soon, very soon, often, will be your own. Take death seriously, because death is serious about taking you. The ultimate reason to take death seriously is that God is sovereign, and we will not be able to dispute with Him in death any more than we've been able to argue with Him in life. The way you take death seriously is by mourning your own sin, lamenting it. Which is the reason death entered reality in the first place. Godly sorrow over your own sin, in verse 3, is better than lightheartedness. It is godly sorrow, contrition for sin, leading to repentance from your rebellion against God, that alone can lead to a glad heart in God's presence. Friend, if you have been disputing with God, stop. Don't be defensive with him about your sin or about his sovereignty over your sorrows. He is righteous. But he is also merciful and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness to those who fear him. So let your heart be sad over your own sinfulness. That is the first step in being reconciled to this sovereign God so that he is for you in Christ and not against you because of your sin. This is one reason we pray a prayer of confession during our Sunday services. We practice confessing and lamenting our sins together as a way of maintaining fellowship with God, that's true, but also as a way of making this service, at least for a few moments, a house of mourning over our sins and the consequence they deserve, and the consequence they had on Christ and the cross, and the freedom we can have from that consequence in Him. First, think about your death. 
Second, listen to wise rebuke cautiously. Listen to wise rebuke cautiously in verses 5 through 7. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Because God is sovereign, because we seldom know what's good for us in life, we should listen to wise rebuke. That's the point of verses 5 and 6. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the song of fools even when that song of fools is written to flatter you. The laughter of fools is like crackling in a fire under a pot. Crackling thorns. What does that mean? Thorns burn quick, but not hot. And the crackling is all sound and no heat. It doesn't last very long. It flames out. You ever tried to start a campfire with thorns? Hard-pressed. Doesn't last very long. The crackling of the thorns is irrelevant to the heat of the fire. So you're not going to warm up that pot over it very fast or for very long. Flames out quick and the pot is still not warm. In the same way, the laughter of fools does very little to warm your heart or stoke the flame of your love for Christ. Fool's laughter is a flash in the pan, but it doesn't produce any lasting heat. Pleasant in the moment, but it doesn't accomplish anything. By contrast, the rebuke of the wise is not initially pleasant, but it produces lasting warmth towards Christ. See, this is why you need a serious preacher, not a comedian in your church. But of course, this is Ecclesiastes where nothing is exempt from criticism. So verse 7 puts even the rebuke of the wise into perspective. Because others also seldom know what's good in life, according to 6.11, we should listen to wise rebuke cautiously. Oppression drives even the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts even the wise person's heart. In other words, even the wise can be fooled into having bad motives for rebuking you. So you should not take as gospel everything anybody else says to you just because they're the ones saying it or even because they have a reputation for being wise. They're sinners too. They're ignorant too. They don't know the future any better than you do. They're subject to both God's sovereignty and their own limitations. So yes, keep a heart that's humble to receive rebukes from the wise. You must be humble. But know that even wise people are not immune to corruption and mixed motives. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Again, all this makes most sense in the context of 6, 10 to 12 especially 7.13 to 14, even the wise person who rebukes you with pure motives cannot make straight what God has made crooked. Even their counsel can't fix it. Only God can do that. So listen to wise rebuke more than the laughter of fools. Yes. But don't give wise people the kind of deference that only God deserves. 
You have to listen to even godly sermons and counsel with biblical discernment. That doesn't mean that you become a skeptic or a cynic, always doubting everyone's counsel because no one's perfect, always trying to poke holes in everybody else's counsel because nothing's good enough for you. But don't put people on pedestals. You see how the framing context of 611 and 714 relativizes the good of these proverbs? They are good counsel. But they can only be relative good. That doesn't mean absolute truth and morality disappear. It only means that our knowledge and application of that absolute truth and morality can only be finite. Seeing how things turn out is better than just seeing them start up, precisely because you can't know how the startup's going to turn out. That's one way funerals are better than births or weddings. You see the end. That's why it's wise to mourn your sins now and go to the house of mourning now so that when death comes, you've already reckoned with God about your sins and put them under the blood of Jesus. The wise man's rebuke is better than the fool's laughter, but that doesn't mean that the wise man's rebuke is infallible. He's subject to the ignorance of 6.11.2. That's the sense in which this also is vanity. 7.6. The wise man's rebuke is vanity precisely because the wise man is himself also subject to the ignorance of our human situation under God's sovereignty. Even that wise person can't make straight what God made crooked in your life. So all this proverbial wisdom is just that. It's proverbial, yes, in the sense that there's an observable pattern to how life often works, and we should live within, with the grain and not against the grain of life. But that pattern is not a guarantee. God himself put a glitch in life's pattern as a consequence for our sin. And so we can't be smug or presumptuous about our counsel or about our application of Scripture. We're only human, and even wisdom itself cannot make us God to have complete control over our lives and over our relationships and how those lives and relationships turn out. You're not in control. No matter how many Proverbs you memorize and obey, you're not in control. That leads us, then, to our third counsel. Don't get angry at God or life. Don't get angry at God or life. Verses 8 to 10. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Verses 8 to 10 counsel us to be patient with a secret providence that frustrates us in 6, 10 to 11. I don't know what to do. I can't know what to do because I don't know how this is going to turn out. That frustrates me. I did the right thing. I thought I did the right thing, and it blew up in my face. Now what? And now I look bad for doing the right thing. And that kind of makes me angry. That kind of makes me frustrated. That kind of makes me impatient with God. Well, God, what are you going to do now? What do you expect me to do now? I did the proverb. I lived that way. You didn't keep your end of the deal. God doesn't let us know what He's doing while He's doing it. Sometimes God never lets us know what He was doing. He never let Job know. 
Never let him know. Job never knew that there was a wager in heaven between God and Satan about what was going to happen or how Job was going to hold to his faith or not. He didn't know that God was staking his glory on Job's obedience. Job never knew that. God never explained it to him. God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity in verse 14. When his plans cross ours and run contrary to ours and frustrate ours and overrule ours, we cannot argue with him about that, much as we may feel like. So when that happens in your life, when God's plans upset yours, when God's timing is not yours, when the friend moves away, when the leader disappoints and hurts you, when the child goes wayward, remember, better the end of a thing than its beginning. When the cancer comes back, when the relationship breaks, when the job is lost, when the investment tanks, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. It's not a mark of intimacy with God to express anger at God. It's not a mark of wisdom to be angry at life. That is pride. That's foolishness. God is sovereign. You cannot dispute with Him about how He has shaped your life. The more you argue with Him, the more you're angry with Him, the more it is that you prove your pride against Him. And that is exactly what He is trying to break in you. You cannot tell what will be after us, but God can tell what will come after because He is planning it in ways you cannot fathom in order to bless you. This goes for both the course of history and the course of your own life as you look back over it. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We all have regrets. We look back over our lives at the crooked things in our past and we wonder, why did it have to be like that? Why do I still have to hurt that that happened so long ago? Why does that hurt still follow me? Why am I still dealing with that? Why do I still not like that? Why do I still feel raw about that? We regret. We wish things had been different. We wish we could go back to that time before the bad thing happened, before the absurd event, before the senseless sin, before the frustrating providence, before the regrettable decision. But there is no golden age, either in history or in your life. There's no use looking back over your life and getting angry at God or at the world or at life over all that has happened to you, around you, against you. That means you just have to trust the Lord with it. Fourth, Acknowledge the limits of wisdom. Acknowledge the limits of wisdom. Verses 11 to 14. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider 
the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him, no matter how wise that man is. The good of wisdom, 7, 11 to 12, is pretty marginal when it comes down to it. In fact, Kohelet compares wisdom himself to money, and we know what he thinks of money. Didn't get him much of anywhere, even as much of it as he had. He spent. Wisdom is like money, because it does help us in this life. Both wisdom and money are preventative. They help us avoid negative things in life. Both money keeps us from being dependent on others in a bad way, so wisdom keeps us from making bad decisions with bad consequences. Wisdom and money are both helps in this life, creature comforts, perhaps, or temporary aids to living in a temporary world. So wisdom is still good. Kohelet still believes in Proverbs. He still reads Proverbs in his quiet time. But wisdom is also like money in that it can't solve all your problems or save you from every sorrow or give you complete fulfillment. Are Proverbs good? Yes. He just doesn't absolutize Proverbs to the point that if they don't work for him, his worldview is upset or his view of Scripture is undermined or quits wanting to believe in God and trust in Christ. He doesn't make rules out of Proverbs. Not anymore. He's been disabused of that. Proverbial wisdom then is limited in its application, scope, and explanatory power for understanding life. And our ability to understand wisdom is similarly limited. Not only is wisdom limited, our understanding of wisdom is also limited. The reason for wisdom's limitations is God Himself in verses 13 and 14. Of chapter 7, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is making you come to grips with that hard, inflexible reality. Consider God's all-wise, all-knowing, history-making providence. Who can straighten out what God has made crooked? Who can straighten what God has bent in life? Not even the wisest of the wise. This is the frustration Coelho started out with in Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. That's what's so frustrating to him. Man, look around at this life. I can't fix anything about it. There's so much that's bent, so much that's crooked, so much that's warped, and it should be straight. I know it should be straight, and I feel like I should be able to figure it out and straighten it out, but I can't. God made it that way. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is dealing with that. We have to deal with it. But now Kohelet informs us that what is crooked was made crooked by God. He didn't tell us that in chapter 1, but now he tells us that in chapter 7. That's why we can't make it straight. God's the one who made it crooked. Listen, if I close a bottle, top, a bottle cap as tight as I can, there's no way my four-year-old is going to be open that bottle cap. Because I tighten it. And 
And if God warps something in my life of his sovereign power for his glory, for his mysterious purposes that he doesn't owe me an explanation for, I will never be able to unbend that. So what do I do when I feel like God has bent a part of my life that is really important to me? That I thought should have been sacrosanct, off limits to God's bending. That I really want straightened out. He took away the friend. He interrupted the career. He took the health away. He took the spouse. He took the child. He allowed the virginity to be stolen. The pastor or leader became a severe disappointment and sorrow. God bent something you loved when it was straight. That's what you loved about it. How straight it was. You could use the straightness of that thing to measure other things. Now that's bent. God did. Not all the wisdom in the world will enable you to be the one to straighten it out. What now? Look there in verse 14. Why did God make the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Well, that's not very encouraging. That doesn't seem very nice of God. You're not going to hear songs about that on K-Love. God made the day of adversity so that man may not find anything after him. You can't. You're telling me, the Bible is telling me that God creates adversity in order to keep us in the dark? That's what the Bible is telling me. You've understood the position exactly. What do we do with that? Friends, what else can we do? Bring it to God in prayer, in sorrow, in humility. And to share our sorrows together with each other in prayer. We humble ourselves before Him. That is what we do. We bow to Him and to His ways. We tremble before His majesty. We admit that He made the day of our own present adversity. You made this day. You allowed this. You planned this. You are working this. You are in control of this. We acknowledge the limits of our wisdom and understanding God's ways in history and in our lives. And you must bring Him your confusion. Where else are you going to go? Who do you have in heaven besides this God who did this? Bent this. You have to bring him your tears. You've got to trust him with it, that he knows everything that will be after you. Even if you never figure it out, even if he never tells you why it happened, what he wants from you is your trust in his wisdom over the bentness of your life. Even if he does not share that wisdom with you. He wants you to trust Him. The wisdom is real, but it cannot put you in control of your life. And it cannot make you understand all God's ways over your life. Wisdom is preservative, it's protective, but it is not redemptive. 
It cannot give you leverage with God to make him do for you as you wish. Wisdom is good, but it cannot outmaneuver God, and it does not make you a God. No matter how much you believe it, no matter how much you teach it, no matter how much you expect of it, it cannot put you in control. So when you feel the crookedness in your lot in life, what God wants from you is to subdue your heart to His control over your life, even when He's controlling a part of your life that you don't want Him to control, and He's doing it in a way that you don't like or approve, or even understand. And that leads us to our fifth counsel, fear God, fear God. 15 to 18. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. From that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of these. Uh, what? What is he saying? He's pivoting back briefly into observation mode. I've seen it all, he says. I've seen how life overrules Proverbs sometimes so that the righteous perishes and the wicked prolongs his life in his own sins, contrary to how almost every single proverb reads. So how do we live in a world that is no respecter of Proverbs? He says in verse 6, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? <clears throat> what in the Bible is this? This is a quiet time stopper right here. Right? You come to this verse and you're like, I don't know, man. It's hard to keep reading after that. Is he really saying, don't take righteousness too seriously? Like, I didn't think that was a thing in the Bible. And is he really saying, don't be overly wicked, but just be a little wicked? That that's the way to be a good Christian? And is he really advocating moral mediocrity? Don't take everything so seriously. Be, right, be, a, be a moral centrist. No, he's saying that there's a way of flaunting your righteousness that actually borrows trouble. Don't do that. God doesn't expect that of you, and it's not going to serve you well in this life. That's not why. Don't quote Scripture just to prove that you can to anybody who will listen. Don't pray in public to impress people. Matthew 6, Jesus says this kind of thing. They love to be heard in the streets. They love it when everybody knows they're fasting. They don't shave. They don't shower. They stink. They look like they're fasting. Don't do that. Don't make your conscience the rule for everybody else's conscience on matters that are debatable from Scripture. Hmm? I don't drink, so I don't think anybody else should drink either. I don't smoke cigars, so I don't think anybody else should smoke cigars either. I don't wear this, that, or the other, so I don't think... Anybody else should wear this, that, or the other, or go to these kind of movies either. And they better not, or I'll, I'll disapprove of it. 
Don't set up your own moral proverbs as fences that confine or hurdles that test others. Here's what you gotta be to do. Here's what you gotta do to be righteous. You gotta do this thing. This is my idea, my application of scripture, but you gotta do it. Don't speak and act like your moral or social conservatism or your liberalism is what saves you. He's not saying, hey, sin every once in a while and just keep it relatable. He's not saying, hey, man, you can't be so righteous that nobody can relate to you anymore. So just sin every once in a while just to prove to people that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Not how he's telling you to live. He's saying, stop thinking more highly of your own righteousness than you ought to think. Don't try to get others to think more of your own righteousness than they ought to think of your righteousness. Over-righteousness is the attitude that says that your habits and rules, your moral proverbs and fences, make you more righteous than others and can make others as righteous as you. It's over-righteousness. Don't be like that. Christ's righteousness, credited to your account, by grace alone, through faith alone, is what makes all of us equally righteous with Christ. And that's what ends all comparison and over-righteousness. And of course, you should not be overly wicked. Notice he did not say, be a little wicked. He said, do not be overly wicked or a fool. Reign in your sinful appetites and inclinations. Don't abuse grace. Prohibition of over-righteousness is not a permission slip for a little wickedness. Much less is it a permission slip for letting wickedness run rampant. This is a rebuke to a moral libertine who says, nobody can tell me how I live. So what's the answer? How should we live? Well, you fear God. That way, you will not be either presumptuous in your own morality, because you are always viewing yourself in a relationship to God's transcendence and perfection. Nor will you be permissive in your sin, because you will be respecting God's holiness. Fear God. Take God seriously in His character, His warnings, and His promises. And Act in the awareness that God is watching and that God will hold you accountable. Sixth counsel, acknowledge your own limits. This is 19 to 28. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off is deep, very deep. And who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman, heart, with snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her. The sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found as a preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Some of the connections between these verses are hard to figure out. The thrust of verses 19 to 28 is clear. No one is perfectly righteous, and no one has found the ultimate wisdom, not even this guy. I'm not sure what verse 19 means, so don't ask me about it tonight. Verse 20 is plain as day. Everybody sins. There's not even a righteous person who doesn't sin. Friends, this is the kind of frank admission that the modern mind wants to avoid. But the church is here to remind us not only that we all do sin, even those in the church, and that sin against an infinitely holy God merits hell for all eternity, that doctrine is still true too. But the church is also here to proclaim the good news that God has sent us a Redeemer to save us from the power and penalty of our sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous man who never sinned. And what did he do with that sinless life? He laid it down for us in our place, for our sins, on the cross, to suffer under God's righteous wrath for us so that we might be reconciled to God and purified of our sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. He obeyed God's command in his life. He endured God's curse for our sins in his death. He rose from the dead. Now he shares that sinless righteous status with all those who will ever turn and trust in him. That is what makes Jesus our wisdom. Well, it says in verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. So we're surprised to hear him say in the very next breath that wisdom was far from him. Well, which is it? Are you using wisdom or can't you find it? But clearly he has something different in mind, a different kind or level of wisdom, a depth of wisdom, a key to wisdom that somehow remains far from him, even while he's testing all things by whatever wisdom he does have. But still, he senses wisdom is remaining elusive. It's hiding from me. I can't I feel like it's always on the other side of the tree. and It's running from me. It's dodging me. I'm chasing it, but I can't catch up to it. Verse 25, he tries with all he's got to seek out wisdom, the scheme of things, which is an accounting term. Well, here's like an accountant poring over the books, scouring the spreadsheets of the universe, trying to populate every single field and reconcile every equation in the spreadsheet of life. But he's got so many void cells, so many corrupt formulas when he looks back at it, trying to calculate the bottom line of reality. The marbles just don't add up. Trying to understand wisdom and righteousness, what makes foolishness so wicked, yet what he ends up finding is the opposite of what he's looking for there in verse 26. I find something more bitter than death. Stop right there. So all that's trying to understand life, man. He's trying to understand how life works. And yet what he finds is more bitter than death. And what is that thing that's more bitter than death? The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. That sounds awfully misogynistic in our modern year. I don't think that's what he means. He's alluding to Proverbs 9, where lady wisdom, the real lady, the true woman, the woman of all women, wisdom, builds her house and invites the simple to learn from her and live and by contrast, the woman folly in Proverbs 9, who seduces the simple to sin with her and die. While Kohelet is looking for Lady Wisdom, what does he find? Madam Folly, 
in the brothel of foolishness. I was looking for Lady Wisdom. How did I end up here? Does foolishness sometimes appear in the form of a seductive woman? Yes, indeed. But foolishness also appears as an angel of light. Foolishness takes many forms, but it is the seductive nature of foolishness that makes the loose woman a very compelling image for it. Come here, I got something for you. Come here. You're missing out. Come here. Watch this. Do life this way. It's going to be way better for you. God's holding out on you, man. See here, too, how even the search for wisdom itself, then, is subject to absurdity. I was looking for Lady Wisdom, and I find Madam Folly? What in the world? In the middle of seeking Lady Wisdom, Dame Folly. That's who we find. And in seeking God's scheme or account of all things, what we find instead is human conniving and plotting against God. This is how limited we are. He finds that humanity is actually cooking the books. Kohelet is admitting it himself all the way through our passage. Think back over all the kinds of things he said. Man is not able to dispute. What is the advantage to man? Who knows what's good for man? Who can tell what will come after him? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? God made the day of adversity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Who can find out? I have not found. Those are very humbling admissions from a would-be philosopher. When he says in verse 29, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found, that's not misogyny either. What he means is that a good man is very hard to find. That in his search for lady wisdom, all he found was Dame Folly. She's no lady. She doesn't count. failing to figure out life as hard as he's trying. He admits the limitations even of his own search and the absurdity even of searching for this kind of wisdom because he can't find it. He knows it's beyond him. And he ends our section by admitting that our situation in lacking wisdom is actually our own fault. Verse 29, seventh and final counsel, admit that the human predicament is our fault. Our whole problem as a human race is of us. See, this alone I found. God made man upright. It ain't God's fault. God made man upright, but they, they, they have sought out many schemes. If you think he was throwing only women under the bus in verse 28, well, here the whole human race is flat under the bus. One of his framing observations is that, we, that no one can make straight what God has made crooked, but here in verse 29, it's worse. It's not just that we can't straighten out what God made crooked. It's that we made crooked all that God made straight. And Micah 3.9 says as much. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, men, rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. It's the whole reason for the exile. There is the heart of our problem. Right here in Ecclesiastes 7.29 is the human predicament and all of its biblical Clarity. God made man upright. God created us without our permission, without our advice, without our help. He created mankind, male and female, in His glorious image to reflect His glory and purity and goodness and generosity. He created us to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, to serve Him forever and ever. 
and an expanding paradise garden that would eventually fill the earth. He wanted us to be fruitful and multiply little living images of Him, humans, people, to inhabit His global temple as a place where He would come down and meet with us and commune with us. The whole world was to be the church. His only stipulation was that we would leave the knowledge of good and evil up to Him, but we could not leave well enough alone. We stole from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We rebelled against God's good authority and righteous love. And that drew down God's righteous anger. He had threatened death as the penalty, eternal conscious torment in hell for all eternity under God's wrath because we sinned against His infinite goodness and love. But God made straight, we made crooked. So the penalty for us warping God's law is that God warped the world against us. He cursed the ground and subjected it to futility, absurdity. Life works against us now because we worked against God. This leads to our concluding counsel. All this, all this, is why God had to send His own wisdom down in both written and incarnate form. God has put the crookedness into our life and into our lot in life. We are not able to dispute with the God who is stronger than us, but praise God, He has given us another wisdom, an advocate with Him in the person of His own Son, Christ Jesus. Our advocate does not just plead our own case with God. Our advocate pleads His case as ours with God. That's as good as it gets. His case in our place. He was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was the one who lived his whole life in the house of mourning. The cross hanging over his head for three decades. We had made crooked what God had made straight, and so God made life crooked for us. No one could straighten it all out, all this crookedness, except God. So God did what only God could do. He sent his only son, his divine son, the second person of the Godhead, to become the God-man, Christ Jesus, who alone can straighten out the crookedness of our sin and how it warped our relationship with God, Jesus would be the only righteous man on earth who ever did good and never sinned. He himself is the wisdom that has advantage, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. He gave up his sinless life to death on a cross in our place to pay the penalty under God's wrath for all of our foolishness and sin. God raised him from the dead to vindicate his righteousness before all humanity. The risen Christ appeared to his chosen ones who would write scripture and represent his authority and relay it to us. And Jesus then ascended into heaven to sit as our advocate with God the Father. And now Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent of their wickedness and foolishness, to turn to Jesus as our wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption because Jesus can make straight what we made crooked, what God made crooked. Jesus can make straight because He is God. He is sent by God to do just that for you and me. He will. Jesus will come back to right every wrong, to straighten all that is crooked for all those who turn and trust in Him. Just you wait. Father, we 
have criticized you far too often. We have not articulated it. We have perhaps not told others. But we have thought far too hard of thoughts against you for how you have exercised your control over our lives and over the most important things in them. We don't know what to do. We can't convince you to do something else that is not your will that we think would be more wise. We, we ourselves see the fruition of that. You, you are wiser than us. How can we counsel you that you have been wrong somehow? Yet we don't understand what you're doing. We sometimes don't like you. So would you conform our minds and our hearts to your will, your ways? Would you subdue our hearts? Subdue our hearts. Make us stop complaining against you. Make us stop doubting and questioning your wisdom over us. Draw us up into trust in your kindness, in your wisdom, in your power, that you know what comes after in ways that we don't, and so you are even planning what comes after for your glory and our good. We want to trust you. We know we need to. We pray that you would soften our hearts. Trust you with all that frustrates us, all that you have not answered, all the questions we have that you have kept the answers to yourself to, and you have said, not yet, not yet. Help us to walk in obedience and joy before you, trust and reliance that You are wise, even if you don't explain your wisdom to us. Give us obedient hearts, we pray. Make us childlike in these ways that you have called us to be towards you as our Father. May we leave these mysteries to you. May we obey what you have revealed. May we leave to you what you have kept for yourself about the world and about our own lives. We trust you. And in this trust, may we glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.